Hey now, we are getting over, and I am the Silver King, Adam Silverstein, here to lead you through these hard times, data, with instant analysis of AEW Double or Nothing. That's right, the Silver King, Adam Silverstein, is back once again to break down every damn thing that happened Sunday night as soon as AEW's latest pay-per-view Double or Nothing went off the air. We have an absolutely loaded show for you tonight. I am not going to waste a stitch of time before we get to it. You guys know the drill here on the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast. On this show, it is all about the five. It's all about the five. That means leaving five-star ratings and reviews for us on Apple Podcasts. It helps promote the show. It gets people interested, and we get new listeners. Just got a few reviews of people that just started listening to the show. I don't even know how they found it, but they enjoyed it, and it was probably because they got it pushed up in their feed due to those five-star reviews. So do not forget to drop those reviews. Also, do not forget to follow us on Twitter at GettingOverCast so you can get episode drops, so you can converse with us and drop DMs and questions for the show all week long, and so you can participate in our pre- and post-show polls, which the Silver King remembered to do both before and after Double or Nothing tonight. Now, the plan initially was for Vintage Chris Vanini to join me on the show. number of things happened. He wasn't able to catch up with AEW in time. I think he was watching, but he was watching delayed tonight, so he could not join me for the instant analysis, as is tradition. The Silver King will be going at it on his own. Another change of tradition is normally here on the instant analysis podcast. You know how we do things. I pop a cold beer. I talk about a craft beer for a moment, and then I get into the show. Unfortunately, I'm feeling a little bit under the weather as I tape today's show, so I didn't want to exasperate it so late at night with alcohol. I hope you guys understand. I will make it up to you on our next instant analysis and hopefully every single one after that, but no big deal. I have a Big, I believe it's a 40-ounce glass of uh, water in my Yeti. Yetis are absolutely incredible. That's not a promotion. I just happen to love them. So I will be chugging this water throughout the entire show. Uh, And we're going to break down not only everything from AEW, double or nothing, but because Dynamite was on Friday and we didn't have a chance to talk about anything that happened in Dynamite, we're going to cover that as well on the show ahead of each individual match. So let's get to it. There's no reason to waste any more time Let's get to the AEW Double or Nothing Instant Analysis. Real quick before we get to the matches, a word about the set. While I like that they put fans on the stage for the show, one third of the hard cam was basically shot against a brick wall. Like there was fans kind of in a corner and then a brick wall. It bothered me early in the show when it was light out, but it really that that bother went away as the show went on. I kind of kind of forgot about it. I'd actually have preferred the previous setup they were doing because it was more colorful and attractive and just active. Uh, But I understand that they wanted fans in as many pictures as they possibly could. And AEW also made a conscious effort to use the other cameras and not stick to the hard cam as much as they normally do. So I did think that ultimately, all in all, the presentation was solid. But because of the design choices for the stage and the set, there was a lack of pyro, which, you know, You can say whatever you want about that. But here's the thing. The crowd was what was most important in this show. And the crowd came through and made up for every single thing that may have potentially lacked from a presentation standpoint. The crowd at Double or Nothing was the MVP of the entire show. There was a lot of great wrestlers. There were some standout moments from wrestlers on the show. The crowd is the one thing that tied everything together over the course of the entire evening And it deserves a lot of credit. As we're talking about these matches, you should probably know that all of them are probably a quarter point of a grade higher because of the crowd and how good it was and how much it sold everything that was going on. So if you were there, if you happened to be at Daly's place, you deserve a shit ton of credit because that was a hell of a reception. It was a proper first real large kind of sold out wrestling crowd back. Yes, WrestleMania both nights had more people than this but they were extremely spread out in a huge stadium. This was jam-packed all together, and you could really feel the energy throughout the entire night. So as we do here on the Instant Analysis for first-time potential listeners, this is how we do it. First, we start with a pre-show grade. Then we break down the card, starting with the two main events. And then I kind of go in order of things that I think are most important. 
So we don't necessarily go in show order or reverse show order, but we do start always with the main events. But before we get to that, the pre-show grades, I sent this out over Twitter as I always do. And here is how you guys came back. 23.2% of you expected an A, 41.4% expected a B. That's a grand total of 64.3%. 22.1% expected a C. And 13.7%, which is actually surprisingly large and about double, I think, what we normally get for WWE pay-per-views, expected a D or an F. And I agree that there were some matches going into the show that were lackluster from a storytelling perspective, but based on the quality of card, knowing there was going to be a big crowd and knowing the wrestlers that were going to be on the show, I just don't know how you could ever say DRF. If you said C, if you said A, you know, I can understand. I was at a B, a flat B coming into the show. That was my expectation. So, you know, based on my expectation, I'll be able to kind of talk you through everything that happened and you can get an understanding of where I felt it stood in relation to, like I said, my expectation. So I was thinking a B, 64.3% of you were thinking A or B, and that's where we're at entering the show. So we're going to start with the main event, Stadium Stampede match, the second one ever, Inner Circle against the Pinnacle. On Dynamite Friday, there was a celebration of the Inner Circle hosted by Eric Bischoff. There was a strong but short video package for the match in the first hour. The celebration would opened up with a bunch of highlights. Everyone spoke briefly, but not much was said. MJF and Wardlow appeared on screen with Dean Malenko tied to a goalpost in the stadium. So Inner Circle ran over, but got ambushed and attacked while jogging. FTR hit a double pile driver on Santana and Ortiz through tables, and the cameraman missed three other pile drivers that happened simultaneously. I really like the concept of this, but I wish Dynamite had ended with them brawling because it gave away that inner circle was going to win Stadium Stampede, even though we figured that anyway coming in, and even though AW doesn't do that too much on go-home shows where they kind of give away what's going to happen on the pay-per-view because the opposite happened on the go-home. This just really cemented that Inner Circle was going to win. But again, it wasn't, it didn't ruin it. It just kind of made it a little bit too obvious. But let's get to the match itself. Stadium Stampede at Double or Nothing. So it began by Inner Circle rappelling down off the huge scoreboard at the stadium, like they were coming down from a mountain, uh, after MJF cut a short promo on them. It was a really cool sight, despite being completely unnecessary, both in reality and in kayfabe for the match. MJF wore sparkly jeans with Burberry knee pads, which was pretty funny, and hid in a limo at the start of the match. Jericho waited for him and attacked. They focused on Jericho and MJF for like five straight minutes at the beginning. They fought into the football offices where Urban Meyer, the new Jacksonville Jaguars head coach, and Charlie Strong, one of his assistants, were working. For those that don't know, um, I have covered the Florida Gators for like probably a dozen years at this point. I also went to school at the University of Florida. So it was really weird for me to see guys I've interviewed and have talked to and have like intimate knowledge of like throughout their entire coaching careers suddenly appear on a wrestling pay-per-view out of nowhere. I didn't really expect it, but I enjoyed it. Jericho had a funny interaction with Meyer where he wished him luck on the season. And Urban Meyer actually said, quote unquote, holy shit. So that's all going to make headlines tomorrow. And that was very smart of AEW and the Jags to do that. But okay, back to the match. Next, they focused on Jake Hager and Wardlow battling in a freezer. Wardlow nearly used a clearly fake rubber icicle on Hager. And then they spear, I forgot who speared the other one, but they went through a blatantly fake wall. There was also in the freezer, a rubber pig just kind of hanging there. And it was so obviously fake that I just don't, I don't understand why they went that hardcore with the campiness. Even though this was meant to be funny and campy, you could still get things that look real or just put a real suckling pig like, dangling in the freezer. That's not, that's an okay thing. Like you're allowed to do that. So I just thought that was extremely strange. Uh, but anyway, so then we move on from them and Sean Spears is randomly sitting in a room, a dark like closet with a spotlight on him surrounded by steel folding chairs, like on shelves. And he starts fighting with Sammy Guevara. Santana and Ortiz then later find FTR in a club that was operating for some reason while a pay-per-view is going on and while nothing's happening in the football stadium. Tully Blanchard and FTR are standing at a table and there's shots there. All of them take shots. 
And then Conan is revealed as a DJ and they all battled each other. So then Jericho and MJF, we go back to them. Jericho's arm brace got kind of broken as they fought in the football offices. Him and MJF, uh, like I said, were brawling. Jericho hit him with a cardboard cutout of Shad Khan. MJF hit a pile driver onto a conference table and Jericho kicked out at 2.9. Jericho then put MJF through fake glass and he bladed. Then after that, motorcycles were randomly chasing spears. Jericho and MJF wound up in the upper deck of Daly's place. MJF snapped off Jericho's brace officially. Jericho then hit him with a light and power bombed him into this weird like wooden box that was set up there. I don't know what that was. Uh, we then saw Sammy chasing and hitting spears with a golf cart, exercising his demons from the last stadium stampede and the long feud he had with Matt Hardy and Kenny Omega. And I loved that. The, that's an incredible callback. And it made even more sense given how the match finished, that he was able to exercise those demons and scream at the top of his lungs and get the crowd going. Uh, back in the Daily's Place ring, the main ring for the whole show, Spears caught Guevara on a springboard with a chair, then hit him extremely hard with one. But Sammy kicked out at 2.9 and came back with a GTH. Guevara then hit an awesome, I think it's a 6.30 senton for the win. Inner Circle celebrated and they got serenaded by fans with Judas as the show went off the air. So there's so much to unpack here, okay? Let's work backwards. It was extremely smart to do the finish in Daly's place in front of the crowd because you can't do it in the stadium when you have all those fans there. You need the fans at the end of the show. But it was weird that Sammy and Spears were the ones finishing the match on their own without anyone else from either faction ringside or really in Daly's place. We know Jericho and MJF were there, but they were like two decks higher. So it was just really weird for it to end in a brief singles match when this is a five-on-five faction warfare. You know, I just thought it was kind of weird for them to do it that way. But that said, you guys know how much I've praised Sammy on this show. He's a total star. He has a really bright future. And it was awesome to see him get such a big spotlight moment in the main event of a pay-per-view. It's also strange that they leaned so heavily into comedy in what has largely been a blood feud between Inner Circle and Pinnacle. The last match ended with a guy being shoved off a cell, despite how it looked. If you treat it like a real match, or compare it even to Stadium Stampede from last year, it doesn't compare. But if you treat it like a comedy match, and compare it to the campy, like, boneyard match that WWE did with The Undertaker and AJ Styles, then it totally worked. So I'm choosing to grade it and review it in that context, even though that's not what I expected from the match. I expected it to be more serious, given how serious the feud has been to this point. But because there were fewer big spots and a lot less wrestling, and it was mostly just brawling and weird scenarios, and four of the five guys on each team didn't factor into the finish at all. Everyone was just segmented into their own groups the entire match. I'm going to go with 3.75 stars and a B plus. And I think some of you that might upset, but that's a very good grade for a match like this. And I'm saying that because I really, really enjoyed it and was entertained by it. So just because it's not in the four star realm, that doesn't mean it wasn't extremely good. And I think sometimes people think that I really enjoyed it, but there wasn't enough like meat on the bone to really elevate it beyond that. But I thought it did a great job for Sammy. The stipulation that I didn't mention earlier, I forgot the inner circle would have had to break up if they lost. We knew that wasn't going to happen. Uh, so inner circle stays together, which is necessary and important now that their faces and, and crowds are back and they're about to go touring. So everything that they did from a, a booking standpoint, a decision-making standpoint was really solid here. But were elements of the match kind of off? And was it a little disjointed? Yes, it was. So that's why it doesn't get an extremely high grade as a match. But I did like it very, very much. We'll move on to the world championship, the AEW championship, Kenny Omega defending against Orange Cassidy and Pac. On Dynamite, Pac interrupted what was supposed to be an Orange Cassidy interview segment. Don Callis distracted him on the screen as Omega attacked him. The Good Brothers attacked. The Lucha Bros made the save. Then Orange saved Pac and gave Omega an envelope filled with his torn up contract. Omega looked like a moron being distracted and confused by it as Orange basically hit him and Pac with orange punches to stand tall at the end of the show. I've actually grown to really like orange. And as I've said, I expected this match would be great, 
but it just doesn't make sense to me like that he's contending for a world title at one of the four tentpole AEW pay-per-views. You want to do it on a TV special main event of Dynamite, it makes sense to me. But in a pay-per-view, it just didn't really work. And because of that, I never believed that there was any chance that Orange or Pac would beat Omega going into the match. So let's get to the match itself on Double or Nothing. Omega came out with all four of his belts. I think it's the first time that the AAA mega title has been on TV either ever or at least in a really long time, maybe since like the beginning when Kenny won it. This had a high octane start with high flying moves, hurricanas, and everything at the beginning. I appreciated that they tried to keep all three guys involved together as much as possible, whether they were inside or outside of the ring. You don't see that sometimes in triple threat matches where they rely on a lot of one-on-one action with one dude or one chick uh, being knocked out. After a Topeco Hero by Omega, Orange hit Stun Dog Millionaire for a near fall. They exchanged pinning attempts before Pac landed on both with the Black Arrow. Omega hit Snapdragons, and there was really smart choreography with more suplexes, super kicks, and V-triggers. That's not a dig, by the way. When I say choreography, it was done really well. Orange blocked an avalanche suplex by putting his hands in his pockets, and Pac jumped up to hit Omega with a sick avalanche release German suplex. Orange did the pockets gimmick again, and then kicked out of a Tiger Driver 98 from Omega, and Pac next kicked out after a German bridge from Omega. There was a great sequence with a Mishinoku driver on Omega from Orange, immediately followed by a brainbuster from Pac. Next after that, Pac hit a sunset flip powerbomb, falling off Omega's shoulders, then hit a sick avalanche falcon arrow, but Orange intercepted the fall for a 2.9. Orange did the stupid like kicking gimmick, so Pac just kicked him in the nuts. Uh, then he did a Tope Cone Hero on Omega, followed by a black arrow on Orange, but Omega broke it at 2.9. Omega dodged a subsequent black arrow, and Pac countered the one-winged angel with a brutalizer. Orange took him out with an orange punch and a beach break, and Omega kicked out at 2.9. It was a great near fall. That was the best near fall of the entire match. Orange took out both men with orange punches and riled up the crowd. He hit Pac with another one, and then suddenly Don Callis ran down to pull the referee's leg, and the fans chanted, fuck you, Don. It wasn't totally audible, but you could definitely hear it, and it was really hot in the moment. Pac put Orange in the Brutalizer. Omega tried to break it. He kept kicking, but Pac kept it in. He wouldn't break the hold. So Omega instead just blatantly attacked the referee. Like just beat on him. There was no way that the referee didn't see that he got attacked. That's what Omega did. Omega then used the Impact, AAA, TNA, and AEW titles in succession, one after the no- another, to take out Pac basically for good. Orange, after that, caught Omega with an orange punch, but by the time Aubrey Edwards ran down to count the pinfall, Omega countered it into a crucifix for the 1-2-3 to retain the title. This was a hell of a match, an absolute freaking banger, and it met every expectation I had for it. Yet, the blatant cheating finish was disappointing because it almost got as much heat on Callus, maybe more heat on Callus, than it did for Omega. Callus was the one who pulled the referee's leg. Callus was the one who slid all the titles into Omega to use. Now, that doesn't change that this was incredible action. But even without much storytelling in the match itself, it was on pace for five stars for me, because these three were just ridiculous together, and that's what we expected. It was easily the match of the night, And the finish was really smart, despite it being yet another ending with interference. Not just an ending in an Omega match, but an ending in an AEW match with interference. They don't do countouts, they don't do disqualifications, and I give them a lot of credit for it. But holy shit, do they do a lot of interference finishes. So now I'm looking at it, Pac has no claim to another match, but Orange most certainly does. So the question is, when are they going to do that? Ultimately, got to kind of put it all together, package it together, grade the match, It's really tough. I'm going to go with 4.5 stars and an A because it's certainly no lower than that. But I can't get to five no matter what because it lacked story coming in and during the bout. Even though the action was awesome, there wasn't a lot of storytelling. Still, it was extremely impressive as a first AEW triple threat match for a title. And look, if you want to go 4.75 stars, which is an A+, and, and that's your prerogative, I'm not going to argue with you, but I don't think it can go over that. And I think 4.5 is really 
the right number, especially when you compare it to, you know, the Daniel Bryan Roman Reigns that we've seen this year, the Cesaro Roman Reigns. Those are matches. I forgot what I exactly gave them. I think one I gave a five, one I gave 4.75. Those had much more storytelling, completely clean finishes. There were high stakes. There were, you know, similar near falls to this, but there wasn't a blatant cheating finish and a schmoz basically at the end. So I have to go 4.5 here, but man, this thing rocked. It's definitely going to be a match I watch many times again in the future. Um, I loved it. This, like I said, this was the match of the night. We'll move over to the women's championship. Hikaru Shida defending against Dr. Britt Baker, DMD. On Dynamite Friday, they had a celebration for Shida, who was honored as the longest reigning champion in AEW short history at over one year. After she carried the tiny little toy belt for that entire one-year run, Tony Schiavone on the show awards her a human-sized, slightly updated, a little bit nicer version of the women's championship. All I could think of is how funny it is that she's only going to get to hold that title for 48 hours because you knew Baker was winning the match. We've talked about it for weeks. I I just couldn't believe like they should have done this. I know they wanted to wait for the year anniversary. I get it. But man, had they done this like two months ago or three months ago and allowed her to hold this bigger title, like that would have been nice. But she gets the toy title and we'll talk about what happened in the match. She had cut a nice baby face promo in English honoring the fans before Baker gave her credit for the last year, but said she's ready to start a new era for the AEW women. Let's get to the match. I was actually disappointed and surprised that this was not a final three match on the show, meaning a triple main event, basically in the in the second to last spot, you know, prior to the stadium stampede. It was also slower, sloppier, and way more boring for most of the match than I expected. And that was disappointing too, because if you guys remember on the Ultimate Preview, I told you I was looking forward to this match more than any other on the show. So it did not live up to my expectations. Baker hit a curb stomp right at the beginning of the match and got her glove, then hit a thrust kick, sling blade, and air raid crash for a near fall. She'd have got a superplex and a stretch muffler, but she just released it for like no reason. Then Rebel accidentally hit Baker with her crutch, but Baker kicked out at 2.9 and again after a Falcon Arrow by Sheeta. The match finally picked up in like the final two minutes when Rebel got tossed from ringside as Baker curb stomped Sheeta onto the title, but the champion kicked out at 2.9. That was the moment of the match only because it was a total surprise that it wasn't the finish. The fans were expecting Baker's a heel. She's going to cheat to win. It was hot and it, it made a lot of sense in the moment but Sheeta actually kicked out, which made her look extremely strong. Baker then kicked out of a Tomashi, and Sheeta kicked out of a Crucifix. Baker finally got the lockjaw on for the win, and she celebrated with a huge ovation from the fans and a hug from Tony Schiavone on the stage. The big reaction for Baker was expected, and it did put a nice bow on a match that was just honestly not good at all until the finish, and that finish was even aided by the fans just being all in, no pun intended, for Britt Baker. As a reminder, I said it just a minute ago, I was looking forward to this match most on the entire show and thought it would be an A, like my floor for the match was an A minus probably. But it just didn't deliver. It's it's a sad truth. I gave it a 2.75 and a C plus, which is not terrible, but it was a C minus for me until the finish. So the finish raised it a full half letter grade but I couldn't get to B minus because so much of the match was sloppy. There were a number of botches. It just really wasn't that good. But the finish was fantastic and they deserve credit for coming home strong. So it gets a 2.75 and a C plus and it's nothing to be upset about, but I was disappointed ultimately in the match. We have the tag team titles on the line, the Young Bucks defending against John Moxley and Eddie Kingston. On Dynamite, Mox and Kingston had the Dior Jordans that they stole from the Bucks in mud for some reason. Mox said the Bucks may be a more experienced and better team, but they're dogs and will do whatever it takes to win the titles. Kingston doubled down, and I thought this was a great promo by them as usual. This match ended up being the second one on the show. I thought it was going to be later in the show, but one thing AEW did throughout the entire Double or Nothing is they wanted to create moments and momentum to keep the crowd engaged. And they started with 
Hangman Page and Brian Cage, which was really, really smart. And they followed up with this because they wanted John Moxley and the Young Bucks and they wanted them to get that big spotlight. Usually AEW builds their pay-per-view cards like New Japan does, like I always beg WWE to do, where they kind of start with a hot opening match, but then go low card to main event. They didn't do that here. They mixed it up. And again, I think it was really to keep the fans engaged. Nevertheless, uh, so Mox, they all make their entrances. Mox breaks a beer can on his head, just like Sandman. Uh, The faces attacked before the match began, then got behind as Matt Jackson showboated. Mox got the hot tag, hit some release suplexes, and was getting up on the Bucks when the Good Brothers ran down. Frankie Kazarian then made the save, but Matt used cold spray on Mox, put it in his eyes, and then Mox bladed after Matt threw a can at his head. It was just pretty ridiculous. There were a number of blading incidents throughout the entire show. I already mentioned MJF. Uh, the Bucks hit the Meltzer driver on the entrance ramp and a senton inside for a near fall. Mox fought the Bucks two on one for what felt like five minutes. They even tried to do the Shields powerbomb, but got thwarted. Rick Knox did nothing in this match and looked, I, I hate to say it, he looked like a fucking moron all match long. And Kingston just stood on the ring apron watching the Young Bucks double team his partner for like five minutes. It made zero sense whatsoever. Mox finally got out of the double team, tagged in Kingston. The Bucks continued to fight Kingston two on one with no tag, no one giving a shit. Mox got Matt in a sleeper, but he escaped and Nick hit a 450 as Matt covered for a near fall. Moxon hit a doomsday device with the Bucks Jordans in his hand for another near fall. I thought they were covered in mud and I thought they got buried. So now they're clean and in the match. Uh, Nick flipped out of a paradigm shift, but got caught with one a moment later. However, Matt broke the fall. Mox then kicked out at one after four super kicks. Then the Bucks kicked Kingston again and hit two more super kicks plus four straight BTE triggers on Mox and one clean. So during the match, the crowd chanted, this is awesome twice. And... To each their own. There were moments in the match that were extremely exciting, I will agree. And if I was there live, I may have been engrossed cheering for Mox, especially in a number of the near falls I was talking about where you started thinking, you know what, they're going to have the Bucks drop the titles and Mox and Kingston are going to win. The crowd is obsessed with him and rightly so. And it would have been a good moment for AEW to give him a tag team title with Kingston early in the show, the crowd cheering. So they did get down the road to swerving, right? And making you think that Mox and Kingston would win. But watching at home and not being there live, I just felt the match was really disjointed and messy. Ignoring the tag team rules to that extent was ridiculous. And the finish was a letdown the way it played out after a lot of high energy action. Like it got really exciting and really pent up and there were near falls and kickouts and all this was going on. And then all of a sudden the energy completely died down and they hit the super kicks and the BTE triggers, and it got really slow. And then they just pinned Moxley. You kind of felt the air let out of the place. I did like that the Bucks won completely clean, but I just cannot go above a 3.5, which is a B for this, even though I know a certain someone is probably going to give this a high four stars. Who knows? He may even give it five stars because it's the Young Bucks. I just can't get there. The Young Bucks have had, I'm not a huge fan of the Young Bucks, but they've had much better matches that I've seen. Moxley's had better matches that I've seen. This to me was just a total mess. And I think the crowd, it sailed on the crowd's shoulders, basically. If not for the crowd, I think people wouldn't have given it the credit that it will probably get, but I'm sticking to my guns here. 3.5 stars and a B. And that's not a bad grade, by the way. It's just how I legitimately felt about it. Doing a lot of false finishes doesn't automatically get you a high grade in a match. It's just, that's not how it works. But if you're disappointed in that grade, Hopefully you're not disappointed in the next one because I love this match. Adam Hangman Page against Brian Cage. This opened the show. On Dynamite, we had Hangman against Joey Janela. Page had a couple rolling elbows, a pop-up powerbomb, and the buckshot lariat for the win. Hangman somehow, in the last 15 seconds of this match, got opened up at his hairline. I assume it was a hard way because blood didn't make any sense in the match, but it was pouring out of his head, so I'm not totally sure. It was just kind of strange. Page called out Team Taz because he saw they were obviously going to attack him just like they always do. And he questioned Cage's manhood, saying he didn't need their help. And if he did, basically he was a coward. Cage agreed and he said 
let's make it a clean one-on-one match at double or nothing. Other than the weird blood, I thought this was a really good go-home segment for what was otherwise a very simple singles match, which was obviously a rematch, which AEW does not do that often. All right, let's get to double or nothing. I thought it was really smart to open the show, the main show, with this so Paige could get the crowd going. They absolutely love Hangman. And even though the crowd was red hot, putting him right at the start of the show, just like they often do at the very start of Dynamite, it was the it was the way to go. And even though this wasn't the lowest match on the show, it just made a lot of sense to be in the opener. Cage threw Hangman around early, but he answered with a near fall on a crucifix bomb, then a moonsault outside and a hurricanrana off the ropes. Cage superplexed Hangman onto the entryway, then hit an avalanche version of his F10 finisher, but Hangman still kicked out at 2.9. Commentary, Taz included, criticized Cage throughout the entire match for being nonchalant with his covers and not really caring. Taz was angry he wasn't taking the help. That was very interesting storytelling. Cage himself tried a buckshot lariat because he got frustrated. Hangman countered with Cage's F10. Very smart. Cage then powerbombed Hangman, suplexed him onto his head, and hit a spinning Liger bomb for a pair of near falls. That let Ricky Starks and Hook run down to ringside, but Cage waved them off. It looked like he had avoided their distraction, but somehow he was still a little bit distracted, and Hangman hit him clean with a buckshot lariat for the win, so it gave Cage an excuse to lose the match, but it allowed Page to win and get his victory back. Is it 50-50 booking? Yes, a little bit of that is allowed for a company that does not do it that often, so I had no issue with it whatsoever. You could see the finish coming a mile away, especially at home, because you heard commentary and you heard Taz be angry that he wasn't accepting the help. If you're in the arena, you probably didn't see it coming as much, even though you probably got an idea from watching Dynamite what this was going to be and how it was going to end. But all of that's okay, because this was a great match with a ton of action and entertainment. They both worked really well together. Heyman got the necessary win, but Cage is not hurt by the loss. This was 4.25 stars and a flat A for me. I can't really go higher than that because I have the Omega triple threat at 4.5 stars, but this was exceptional. It was extremely well wrestled and it was the best match on the show up until the AEW World Championship match. And it was, like I said, a worthy opener and the appropriate opener. A couple more matches here. Uh, We have the TNT Championship, Miro defending against Lance Archer. On Dynamite, he put the title on the line also against Dante Martin. I'm almost positive that the only difference, by the way, between Miro and Rusev is that Miro stares really wide and yells. Other than that, they're mostly the same dude. Uh, And that's not a negative because Rusev was great and Miro was great too. Martin had a few bright moments, including a springboard dropkick, but Miro vertical suplexed him from the ring apron, hit a thrust kick and won with the accolade. Jake Roberts and Miro cut a couple really bad promos at each other and Lance Archer attacked and hit a boot before they got separated by referees. As I said on the Ultimate Preview, running this match so quickly after Miro won the title felt forced and it didn't make much sense despite the fact that I knew it was going to be a banger from the start. Uh, The match began, Archer ran into Justin Roberts and attacked Miro before the bell, so they just rang it. Then he quickly put Miro into a table outside. Miro dumped Archer into some planted crowd members. Then back to ringside, Miro dragged Jake Roberts and a bag, presumably with a snake inside of it, into the ring. And then he tossed the bag right up the stage. The assumption, of course, is it was a rubber snake in the bag, but you couldn't tell. The crowd reacted to it. I thought it was pretty funny. Archer stopped him from thrust kicking Jake with a choke slam. Miro hit him with the thrust kick instead and then locked in the accolade, bending him backwards and falling on him as the referee basically called for the bell without having Archer tap, just they used him passing out to allow Miro to win the match. So obviously, you know what this match was all about. He don't want no water. He don't want no bread. All he wants is meat. And there was, to be fair, a lot of beef flying in the ring. However, as I said on the Ultimate Preview, this match happened too soon, and Archer just never, ever wins in AEW. Like, he's there full time. I don't understand why they're not having him win. And not that he should have won the title here, but he shouldn't have been in the match in the first place. If this ultimately leads to him breaking up from Jake Roberts, then it makes sense. 
because Jake getting involved and holding him back all this time, Archer recently not letting Jake cut promos for him, it would all kind of tie in together and make a lot of sense. If that's not the booking, then it just was worthless. This was a really tough one to grade because there was the big media action that we all love from professional wrestling, the big meaty men slapping meat, as we all say. Big meaty men slapping meat. <laughs> but it wasn't long enough. It wasn't really good enough. Jake Roberts getting involved late kind of took away the momentum. So I'll still be positive, though. I'm going to give it 3.5 stars and a B because I did find it really entertaining. I just, there's a lot of it that I didn't necessarily love is the best way to put it. All right, let's move on to Darby Allen and Sting against Scorpio Sky and Ethan Page. Now, I forgot to predict this match on the Ultimate Preview, but I would have definitely gone with Darby and Sting because it's not like the heels would have been hurt with a loss, despite the fact that they probably could have used a win to establish themselves. On Dynamite, Darby Allen fought Cesar Bononi. It was smart to open Dynamite with this for the fan reaction. Darby won with the coffin drop and called out the heels, who refused to fight for free. Then the Wingman, which is like a faction that's only existed on Dark and Elevation, they decided to have them on Dynamite. Uh, they attacked the faces from behind before Paige choked out Allen, and Dark Order then saved Sting from having his ankle crushed in a chair by Sky. I usually hate all the forced 20-person run-ins that AEW does, but this worked for me because the crowd was hot to start the show. It was just immensely repetitive, as everything with Sting usually is. Then later on Dynamite, Sky and Page defeated Evil Uno and Steve, uh, Stu Grayson, not Steve Grayson, Stu Grayson in a tag team match. The heels avoided the fatality. Sky put Grayson in a heel hook and Page hit Ego's Edge, which is his finisher, for the win. Darby entered with Sting and like six other dudes in Sting masks to attack. So this match got a double go-home segment, despite it being the sixth or seventh most important match on the card. But somehow... It ends up being in that third to final spot over Britt Baker and Hikaru Shida for the AEW Women's Championship. So I thought that was interesting. We'll get to the match right now from Double or Nothing. Darby wore modified Sting face paint. Sting ate a vertical suplex onto the entryway. He immediately got up from it. Then he did the uh, Stinger splash off the stage to a huge ovation from the crowd. Despite Darby being over, The match was actually mostly dead while he was wrestling. The fans were just waiting for Sting the entire time. Page threw Darby over the top rope and over the barricade into, I think, a couple family members at ringside. It was an insane spot that honestly, I I may be like, I may sound like a get off my lawn old curmudgeon here. It just never should have happened. I don't care how crazy Darby is, how much he doesn't give a shit about himself. That's too dangerous and completely unnecessary for a company as big as AEW. I guess that was for people who loved the feud he had with Paige and Evolve. They did apparently a lot of wild and crazy shit. But you're on a major pay-per-view for the number two brand in North America. Or I should say the number two brand in the United States of America. I just don't think that was necessary, appropriate. Was it a wow moment? Yes, it was definitely a wow moment. But at what cost? Like he could have seriously hurt someone, especially if he didn't land exactly on two people that he knew. There were a lot of people in that section. I don't even care that they were all wrestlers. It just, it was a really unnecessary risk. Uh, Sting got a hot tag in the match, splashed Sky and hit a pretty bad, but he's 62. Code red on Page. Darby and Page got in a slap and eye gouge fight as Sting and Sky had their opponents facing each other in submission moves on the ground. Now, my screen did blank out for a second, so I missed like what happened immediately after that. But Sting did win with the Scorpion Death Drop on Sky. I thought the match was okay. The fans got Sting. That's what they wanted. And other than the match being somewhat entertaining and the fans being so excited to see Sting, it didn't really deserve the placement it got on the card. I didn't hate it. I didn't love it. It actually over-delivered, if we're being completely honest. So I'll go with, let's say... Uh, 3.25 stars, which is a B. That's a very solid grade. It wasn't as good as the Miro Archer match, but it had its moments and it was entertaining. Let me also say, just before I move on as a quick aside, Aubrey Edwards did a great job in this match. I try not to praise or really crap on the referees, but the juxtaposition of her and Rick Knox 
especially during the tag team matches on this show, is just, um, there's a massive gulf between both of them. She cares about the rules. He absolutely doesn't give a shit about the rules. He actively makes matches worse than they are. She actively makes them better. It's just astounding that they book things this way. And you can have two tag team matches, probably less than an hour apart, refereed completely differently. And I just felt that needed to be said. Uh, We got three more matches from the card to talk about and some other stuff on the back end, along with our grades, our final grades for the show. So don't forget to stay around for that. Cody Rhodes fought Anthony Agogo on Dynamite Friday. We had a weigh-in and that weigh-in was hosted by none other than Paul White. He was awful. QT Marshall cut a shit promo as Agogo entered with the factory. Cody came out with legitimately 15 people, but at least had his original music. It took forever because they stupidly chose not to use a digital scale in 2021. They used the one that like you would use in your doctor's office. So they get that weight exactly right with the weights and the balance and the whole. It was absolutely ridiculous to see freaking Big Show try to manage this like manual scale. I get the weighing gimmick because Gogo is an ex-boxer, but it makes absolutely no sense for wrestling when there's not weight classes, unless you're doing a cruiserweight match. It doesn't matter. Cody weighed in at 218, Gogo weighed in at 219. It was mercifully about to end when QT Marshall actually grabbed the mic and cut a promo about Agogo being one pound heavier and that being an advantage and he was clearly going to win the match. This was a total waste of like 10 to 15 minutes. The feud, if you can even call it that, has been terrible and that segment on Dynamite did not help one bit. It was legitimately boring. Now, as far as the match goes on Double or Nothing, I was a bit surprised, I must say. Cody came out to a remixed version of his song. He was dressed like Homelander from The Boys. Uh, Cody ate a body shot and an Olympic slam right at the beginning, then sold a bunch of suplexes. He really helped Agogo look pretty skilled in the ring for a neophyte. Agogo bladed and Cody made like he was a boxer before hitting a springboard cutter. Agogo hit Cody in the jaw on the top rope and then hit a great frog splash for a near fall. A figure four leg lock was unsuccessful and Agogo countered a crossroads into a gut punch and an uppercut. But I think I'm almost positive he completely missed the uppercut. As he went for the fall, Cody's arm was under the bottom rope. Cody then countered a pop-up punch with a vertebraker, which was a little bit surprising, for a clean win. We know the build and story were dog shit. I've said it at, on many shows, don't need to go over it again. But this match exceeded expectations, straight up. I had, maybe it's just because my expectations were so low for it that I didn't know how I could enjoy it. They didn't go too heavy into the USA and UK stuff, even though that was the entire build and it was pretty insulting actually at many parts. Agogo looked like he had a really bright future. He's a good looking kid. He, you know, in a good body and size. He clearly has wrestling skill. He needs to approve on a lot of things, but I think he's going to get there. I think this is a guy, I don't want to say he's a future world champion, it's too early to say that, but you could see where that's a possibility for him. He also has a lot of charisma. Cody, man, it's just been like a downward spiral for him recently in AEW. Maybe it's just because they're trying to figure out things for him to do before he goes on paternity leave, I assume, uh, with his wife about to have a child soon. I'm not exactly sure what it is, Um, but look, uh, I'll go... I'm going to go middle of the road here, 2.5 stars and a C. And I don't think it's generous. I don't think it's unfair. I think that's right. That's that's the right grade. It was a, a mediocre, right down the line, middle of the road match. Cody got a lot out of him. Agogo showed a lot, but it wasn't anything spectacular, especially compared to a lot of really good matches on this card. We'll move on with the last match for us to talk about from the main card before we have a buy-in match. The Casino Battle Royal for an AEW championship opportunity on Dynamite, Christian Cage and Powerhouse Hobbs fought in a storage area. It was a pretty cool, quick aside segment, but that was the only real build for the match. Not that it needed any more. As far as double or nothing, the match itself, both of those two guys, Christian and Powerhouse Hobbs, started in the ring as part of the first wave, and they were the only ones in the ring, plus Matt Hardy, after two full waves. There was a short pop for Christian versus Hardy staring at each other. Uh, Jungle Boy and Pentagon got another similar type of pop, and Jungle Boy later eliminated Pentagon. Christian took out Hobbs 
With them, Hardy and Private Party left. The Joker was Leo Rush. He had a good run with Private Party, but he did not even get a single elimination and was quickly thrown out by Hardy. So that seemed more like a guy being lent to AEW from New Japan. He currently works for them on NJPW Strong, their American show, as opposed to a signing, given how short of a window he got in the match. If that was a signing, he would have got certainly a larger run. Private Party was eliminated by Christian and Jungle Boy, leaving them and Hardy as the final three. Matt tried to team up, but Christian tossed him. Jungle Boy flung himself around the ring post to avoid elimination and dumped Christian over the top rope, back body drop style for the win. Christian was the clear favorite in the match, and he started at number one, like I talked about on the Ultimate Preview, so I figured they were going to do the edge booking. And they twisted, they swerved me, which was very good, I enjoyed that. Christian hugged Jungle Boy after the match. I maintain that the Casino Battle Royal is a solid match concept. I know people don't like it for some reason. I think it's a really smart way to go right between a Battle Royal and a Royal Rumble. You don't want to bite off the Royal Rumble from WWE, but you want to do something more than a Battle Royal. So I like the concept. I just don't think they're executing it that well. That's the biggest problem. I don't know that they're considering how to do the waves right and considering the type of people who should be in the match. And if you're going to make it for an AEW World Championship shot, the ring should not be filled with mostly mid-carters. So make it for a TNT title shot if you want to do that. That's what I would do. Rush was a nice enough surprise as Joker. There were people, as there always are, thinking it was going to be a much bigger name, expecting someone to come out also after the world title main event. Just wasn't really going to happen. Uh, But their roster's huge. I would normally say that this is a guy that they should sign. I just don't think they need to, despite me liking Leo Rush from the very beginning when he was in WWE and NXT. This was probably the best possible usage for him by AEW. AEW was really pushing for big fan reactions by the way it ordered and booked the matches. Jungle Boy was a good winner here, and Christian put him over in a big way with a big hug as the crowd serenaded him with his new theme song after the match. This match wasn't great as a battle royal, but the moment at the end was really nice, so that's going to bump it up a quarter of a star. So I'll go with 2.75 stars and a C+. Plus which again, it's an above average grade. So uh, it was pretty solid. Uh, Now in the buy-in, we had one match, the NWA Women's Championship, Serena Deeb against Rio. Deeb clearly worked as the heel in this. Rio hit a coup de gras, but sold a knee that Deeb was working on with dragon screws throughout the entire match. Rio got a near fall after a 619 and another after reversing a guillotine into a fisherman suplex. Deeb followed with a double dragon screw and powerbomb jackknife cover for another fall. Then she hit an inverted one, but Rio got a great near fall afterwards. Finally, Deeb went absolutely wild on Rio's knee and won with the Serenity Lock submission. This this match picked up massively in the second half. The wrestling was super smooth and the storytelling was fantastic. Deeb remains underrated despite recent growing respect and appreciation for her. I was set to give this three stars, but I ended up In between 3.5 and 3.75, so in between a B and a B plus, I actually kind of want to lean to B plus because as much as I loved that Miro and Lance Archer match, this just kind of exceeded it for me. Maybe it just surprised me how much I loved it, but it was a ton of fun. It was an incredible kickoff show match. One of the best type of buy-in kickoff show matches I can remember in a really long time, and they deserve a lot of credit. This match straight up was better than Hikaru Shida and Britt Baker, which was a total shock to me, despite me knowing that Deeb and Rio are both great wrestlers. So before we get to our post-show grades, a couple other items from the show to quickly discuss. We have All Out happening on Sunday, September 5th in Chicago again, and we have Full Gear on Saturday, November 6th in St. Louis. I like them announcing two shows in advance for ticket sales purposes and just for promotion. I wish WWE would do the same thing. Announce your pay-per-views far in advance. Lastly, AEW announced after the World Championship match, which they cut off the celebration by Omega way too quickly, but they announced that they have hired Mark Henry to be an analyst on the new Rampage show, Fridays at 10 p.m. starting later this year. They just really can't help themselves from signing old WWE guys. Henry, Big Show, and Christian, by the way, were all guys that Randy Orton destroyed recently on Legends Night. And now they're all in AEW just a couple of months later. Think about it. The best guy that AEW has right now in either commentary 
or a journalist type of role is Excalibur, who they basically plucked out of relative obscurity. And they also hired Tony Schiavone, who obviously was never in WWE, but he was a remnant from WCW. He had name recognition, but they also kind of brought him back in from obscurity. But they keep going back to guys who fans complained about as being old and antiquated in WWE. Jim Ross, and I love JR. There's no criticism for him, despite obviously in individual moments, he kind of screws up on the mic. But JR, Big Show, Mark Henry. I mean, people were shitting on Mark Henry during all of the stuff he did on WWE backstage. A lot of the stuff he says on Busted Open Radio. They give him crap all the time, but now he's gonna be endlessly praised for being an AEW, just like Big Show. People were groaning and moaning and complaining about seeing Big Show on their TV, but when he's in AEW, it's all gravy. So I love Mark Henry personally. I think he's awesome. And I think he's a far better analyst type of signing for them than Big Show was because he's actually someone I really want to hear from. But man, I just don't know how deep they're going to go with all these ex-WWE hirings. And it kind of says something because Vince McMahon and WWE, you have to remember, they are not apt to quote unquote losing people. Like That's not something they normally do. But Mark Henry and Big Show are a couple of guys who Vince signed at the times of their signings to record contracts. I think Mark Henry, if I remember correctly, got a 10-year deal from WWE when they never did that. And the one, the only one they ever signed like that was Bret Hart and Vince had to rescind it because the company was losing money. And you know, you know how that story kind of transpired. So Vince has been paying these guys well past their prime. And even Vince and WWE are like, man, there's nothing left for these guys. There's really not any reason to pay them a significant amount of money. And AEW is just like, all right, we will. So I find that interesting. Let's see how the fan reception is. But so far, I was really surprised how positive it was, given how often people shit on Mark Henry. Again, I am not one of those people. I very much like Mark Henry. So a reminder here as we get to our post-show grade for Double or Nothing. Now, our pre-show grade, let's remember, the Silver King entered on the Ultimate Preview saying, I expected a B. And you guys as fans, I'm scrolling up here because I have a ton of notes. 64.3% of you said A or B with the Bs edging the A's 41 to 23. In our post-show poll, your grades as audience members, 32% of you thought the pay-per-view was an A, which is up basically 9% from expectation. 46% of you said B, that's up 5% from expectation. So basically 14% of you in the post-show thought it was a better pay-per-view than you expected coming in. 16% C and 6% D or F. Just like I say with the WWE shows, I don't know how you watch that and say D or F. I can get, you can get away with a C. I'm okay with that. I'll accept it. But D or F, there's no way that show was a D or F. It was a fantastic show. Now, as far as I go, because my grade, my podcast, that's what's most important right now, uh, at least for me in this moment, I thought this was an absolutely massive step up from Revolution. Like huge, night and day compared to that pay-per-view. And a step up from the pay-per-view before it, which name I'm forgetting right now because it's super late. Double or Nothing opened and closed extremely strong with its first two matches and its last two matches. There was definitely a lull in between all of it. But even in some of those lull moments, there were things that individually popped the crowd that again, made the matches seem better than they actually were. But overall, this is probably one of my favorite AEW pay-per-views of all time. Like I said, it's late and I'd really have to think about it, but I I believe it's my top two AEW pay-per-view ever. Now, grading it is really tough because there weren't nearly enough A matches to have it average out as an A. But it was super close. So I'm literally going to, I I don't hedge on my podcast. I'm very definitive in my grades, but I'm gonna explain what my grade is here. I'm going to literally go on the border between an A minus and a B plus, which means if we were grading it like a test, I would give it an 89 out of 100. I can't get to the A minus at the 90 
because it's just not going to average out that way. But I'm going to give it a really high B plus grade, an 89 out of 100, if that makes sense, because this thing was a lot of fun. There were funny moments. There was incredible action. There was really strong and smart booking. But yes, there were also things that were really disappointing. Again, the baker Sheeta match. Again, the finish was really nice. But it was mostly a, a disappointing, slow, sloppy type of match. Cody Agogo still happened, whether we wanted it to or not. The Casino Battle Royal was really nothing special. And a lot of the other matches were Bs. And again, nothing wrong with a B match. Very, very solid jam-packed show. The other thing I'm going to say in general about AEW pay-per-views, they really try to give you your money's worth, which is a great thing. They put a lot of matches on the show. If you're going to do that, and if you're going to give us a four-hour pay-per-view, I would actually take a page out of WWE's playbook, start it at seven, and do the pre-show at six. Because to end a pay-per-view at midnight Eastern, that's what we gave WWE shit about for such a long time. They were giving us four-hour pay-per-views. Now, the difference was when WWE was doing that from 8 to 12, the pay-per-views largely sucked. But ever since WWE moved them to 7 and started doing three-hour shows, they've been much more enjoyable. The length of this one, the lateness of this one, did not ruin it, didn't cause any lower grades or anything like that. I'm just saying, if I'm looking back and giving you know, suggestions to AEW, that's what I would say. Start it an hour earlier, keep it four hours, have it go from 7 to 11, and I think you have a jam-packed show. So let's remember, my B+, plus that's up from my expectation. And I had high expectations of a B going into the show. I think that's a very, very solid grade. 89 out of 100. It's really fantastic. And you guys were kind of right there with me. Like I said, in the pre-show, there were 64.3% of you expecting A or B in the post-show. That jumped up to 78% saying A or B. The B's outweighing the A's, so you guys are basically right with me in a B-plus grade for this, this pay-per-view. And again, I think that's fantastic. They put on an absolutely incredible show that I really, really enjoyed, despite some legitimate criticisms where I mentioned them. Now, before we get out of here, there's one more thing that happened on Dynamite that I didn't get a chance to talk about today, and if I don't, I'm not going to be able to talk about it for another week. So very briefly, we had Jade Cargill against Kylan King in a women's singles match, they gave us like six weeks or eight weeks of identical promos and segments for Jade just for her to end up with Mark Sterling as her manager in a throwaway backstage segment. King stood up nicely to Cargill at 6'1". At least that's what she's billed. AEW actually has a few good-sized, like height-wise women with these two and Chris Statlander. This was the top of the second hour for a change. It got double commercial break. Uh, Jade landed jaded for the win. And I keep believing that Cargill really has an exceedingly bright future in AEW and just wrestling in general. I like that they're slow playing it with her right now. I think that's really, really smart. So, okay, that's the breakdown of AEW Double or Nothing and AEW Dynamite as well. I want to you know, say thank you to all you guys who participated in our pre and post show poll. There are a number of you who also joined us for our live go home show, which we put on 6.30 p.m., right before the AEW Double or Nothing buy-in. We did that on Twitter Spaces. You guys need to join those shows, man. I'm doing them for you. I don't expect, you know, thousands of people to join, but they're special shows. And, uh, you know, the people that join them seem to really like them and interact. So don't forget to follow us on Twitter at GettingOverCast because in the future, when we do those live shows, I'm going to tweet about them and you're going to be able to set reminders for yourself. Now you can listen to them on the Twitter app on iOS and Android, as well as desktop and mobile web, meaning basically any way you access Twitter, you can listen and you can even join in and converse with us live on the show. It's a lot of fun. So do not forget to follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast. And there's one more thing that you cannot forget. It's all about the five. It's all about the five here on the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast. That means... Head on over to Apple Podcasts now that this show is over. Drop us a five-star rating interview and let us know how much you love this podcast. It helps us grow and gain new listeners. And that is the goal. We want to be one of the biggest wrestling podcasts, not one of the 25 biggest wrestling podcasts, despite that still being extremely exciting for us. As far as what's ahead here on the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast, we will be back 
on Tuesday with a full breakdown of WWE. As always, we'll be talking SmackDown, we'll be talking Raw, and any other WWE news that we missed throughout the week. I am not completely sure what we're going to do about NXT and AEW this coming week. NXT, of course, is on Tuesday, but AEW is not until Friday again. So I don't know if maybe I should do NXT Wednesday morning and AEW Friday night and and just keep them separate like that. Maybe I save AEW until the next week and I do a double show. I'm not 100% sure what's going to happen, but I will let you know on Tuesday's WWE episodes. Do not forget to tune into that show. But with that, it's a long night. The Silver King just gave you instant analysis solo. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you enjoyed AEW double or nothing. With all of that, take a page out of Kenny Omega's book. I will bid you adieu, and I will leave you once more with three final words. Bye for now.